Let us pray together for illumination. O Father in heaven, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with you, and the Word was you. Your Son was in the beginning with you, O Father. We come before you amazed that all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So we ask that you let this light shine in the darkness, as the darkness has not overcome it. Show us the truth of the Word in your Word, and we ask all this in His name. Amen. Please be seated. This Lord's Day, we'll be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 40, uh, as we hear the prophet Elijah um, facing off against the prophets of Baal, a well-known passage and kids, it was one of my favorite when I was young. I I loved hearing about this uh, amazing moment where one prophet was willing to stand against 450. Uh, So so I thought this was a fitting text to look at together this evening, and well, in a sense, I'll be focusing more on verses 30 to the end. Uh, For context, I wanted to pick up at verse 20. So 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 20, let's hear together the word of the Lord. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with the swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at midday, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed, And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. 
And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God of Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. So ends our reading from the Word of God this evening. Let us... Uh, reflect upon God's word with thanksgiving that he gives it to us once more this evening. Uh, now, as I said, this is a, a well-known moment uh, in, in the historical narratives of Scripture, uh, a, a battle that is unbelievable between one prophet and the many. Um, it's fascinating to think about the numbers, you know, 450 against this one man. And yet the duel that we find here, you know, I... I I said in the title, Worship in the Midst of War, it seems a battle is taking place, a a real warfare between who is God and who is not, who has the power and who doesn't. Uh, This could be taken really just as a fight breaking out between Baal and the Lord. Uh, but, But the prophet who comes here in Elijah, as he gives this confirmation, as he wins the battle to say, Yahweh is the one true God, I find it fascinating that that in verses 30 to 40 especially, we're not just seeing a war that is won, but worship taking place in the midst of it. Uh, Really, this is such a fascinating moment of of sort of a conflict or a battle that I think we can be quick to miss the fact that that here Elijah is leading a a picture of worship to turn God's people uh, to, to, to the right way and call them to follow the the true God. And, and I, I found that already in verse 21, or, or thinking about that passage this way, when you look at verse 21, and, and Elijah came near to all the people and said to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If there's one Lord God, follow him. Already there, you could think there's a call being given to the people, but, but I believe that call is being made all the more clearly in verse 30. As this duel begins, notice the first words are not to the prophets, are not to Baal, or are not to anything else. It's to the people, come near to me. A call is being given to God's people to come. And that's where I would say this is a call to worship. And what we're finding in the midst of this battle between a false God and the true God is Elijah doing far more by calling God's people to worship at the altar of the Lord. You know, we could almost say there's a reformation taking place. Or, or even better, a restoration of God's people as they come and gather together. So, so when we look at all involved in this passage, the, the people, Elijah and the Lord God, we can, we can see that truly God is being worshipped. And, and the question I would ask is, is how exactly could we say that, that Elijah is leading a worship service in the midst of this kind of battle? 
um, uh, with, with what he proposes. Well, throughout this, we're being reminded there's one object of worship. Uh, that, that's why I would say it's not just a square off between Baal and the Lord. But the Lord's reminding us there's one object of worship, and that's the first point we'll consider. Uh, secondly, there's real reasons for worship that Elijah is reminding all the people and us still today. Uh, but, but finally, I'd say it's, it's also a great reminder that the Lord leads our worship. The Lord tells us how he w- is to be worshipped. And that's the third point that we'll consider in this passage. So, so the one object of worship, the real reasons, and how the Lord leads in worship. Now, when I say the one object of worship, Elijah makes that point very clearly in these verses. Um, that, that he's opposing everything the prophets of Baal are, are trying to throw out before them. Um, because really, when you look back in verses 20 to the, the, the beginning of the verse, when we're seeing these false prophets in action, how are they described? They're crying. They're jumping. They're cutting. They're in huge numbers as the 450 of them are taking place in this chaos. Uh, but, but now in the face of that, all these efforts, these horrible efforts of these false prophets, we see how uh, the tables turn and one true po- prophet calls upon the one true God. Um, It's an amazing moment where we're reminded that there is only one object to be worshipped. And we find that in Elijah's part as the one true prophet. You know, if you go back even farther in this passage in 1 Kings 18, we're reminded how much power the prophets could have when they were speaking for the Lord. Um, Up to this point, uh, Elijah had addressed everybody not, could you please go do this? Elijah would tell people, go do this. He, he spoke to Obadiah and said, go get Ahab, and Obadiah did. He spoke to Ahab and said, go get your prophets, and Ahab did. He told the prophets, come here, and you're going to sacrifice this way to your God, and they did. He told the people, come, in verse 30, and they came. And he told the people to fill the altar with water three times, and they did, and they did, and they did. I point that out because to some degree the prophet is speaking with power. Is the voice of the Lord addressing the people. But what that really also sets up is a, is a big change in the tone of the prophet when he turns to speak to the Lord. He goes from giving commands to people all up to this point with the power of God's authority to now being a voice of the people, turning to approach the Almighty God in verse 36. He turns to the Lord as one of the Lord's servants. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. He comes to to call out the truth of the fact that the people need to realize this is the Lord at work. He's not coming with some command or immediate direction as he had done in all other conversations. Uh, Nor did he go as a fool as the mob of, of beggars and screamers did as they called out to their false god. He turns to the Lord to worship him, to pray to him as a faithful servant bringing a request, which he repeats and emphasizes in verse 37. So he makes it clear that there is only one who can answer what is needed. There is only one who can be addressed, the Lord who is the one true God, that these people who are gathering together may repent. And indeed, the Lord answers the prophet's request in verse 38. Perhaps the most well-known moment of this passage when the fire comes down and consumes everything. 
It's to show his people and to show us still today that he is the one true God. After the prophet has called out to him, the Lord answers to confirm he is the one and only God. And so when we think about the Lord revealing or showing himself to the people in this passage as well, it's good to to show it's it's a confirmation that he's the only God, he's the living God, and he's the almighty God. He, he is the only God. You know, there's something that really struck me about verse 21 when Elijah opens up this conversation and goes to the people with this option. You notice he doesn't say, uh, follow the Lord God or follow the Baal God. He says, follow the Lord God or Baal. You know, who do you follow? And of course, it's fair to say that that use of the word Elohim could, could be more generally meant to apply to both parties. You know, the, do you follow the Lord God or the Baal God? But I found it interesting with how we see this whole miracle play out, that that it is the Lord, he's already shown his hand. It's the Lord who's God. Or are you going to follow this Baal? Are you going to follow this one who's no God at all? And and that's what we find in this answer to Elijah's prayer. The fire comes to show that he's not one of many, but he is the only true God. And, And we need a reminder like that more than ever in an age of pluralism, do we not, beloved? Where, where it's fine if you want to follow the triune God. It's fine if you want to follow Yahweh Elohim. If he's your God, that's fine for you. But my God is fill in the blank. Or my God is the fact that I have no God at all. And, and here we're finding from the truth of what happened in history, what happened amongst God's people, is that God visibly showed to us that there is no other option. He is the only God, for he's the only living God. The, the fact that, that it's true and false is being compared here is also life and death. That, that the living God is being exposed in the face of the dead God of Baal. It's interesting to compare these final actions of Baal's prophets to Elijah and the response of Baal to Yahweh. Because what we find in Baal's prophets in verses 20 and 7, 27 and 28 is all the action coming from them. They're the ones crying out. They're the ones limping or or dancing around the altar. They're the ones cutting themselves and pouring out blood, and nothing happens. And when we come to Elijah, what does he do? He gives a simple prayer. And the Almighty God is the one doing all actions. He comes down as a fire that falls, that consumes, that licks up every drop of water. He is the active party in this. What is a clear contrast between the labors of these prophets with no answer from a dead God is a prayer coming from the true prophet to the true God who actively responds as the living one. And that's an important reminder for us still today because too often the heirs of the world want to say our God is dead. Not just one of many options, but that he's not real, right? And we're, we're told our God isn't real, our God is imaginary, our God is dead. And sometimes when we first look at a text like this, we can think, how come this can't happen today? Why, why can't we just call down the fire and prove all these foolish atheists wrong? Why can't it come pouring down and expose the truth of the one living God? Well, beloved, it did happen. We just read about it. It's in his word. And we know he did far greater by conquering the very power of death and his son rising from the dead. And every time we come together in a time such as this, when we're worshiping, we're worshiping as God's people who are alive because we worship the one and only living God. 
who is still speaking to us through his word, who is still showing us his promises through the sacraments he's given us. Our living God is with us here and now. And we can say praise be to the giver of life. For this only God, this living God, is the almighty God. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, the appearance of the Lord as fire is to confirm his power. You know, whether receiving sacrifices as we see here, or or when he would appear before Moses, or when he guided the people in, in the wilderness... This this light that would come, the fire that would come, was showing the very Lord's power. Uh, That's why it was helpful to have Hebrews 12 as a call to worship this Lord's day to remind us once more that there's nothing new for us as the people of God. When the author of Hebrews wrote those words in, in chapter 12, verse 28, it said, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And you know, sometimes it can be tempting to say, let's skip verse 29, because that could seem overwhelming. Uh, 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 Verse 29 in Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. I don't know if people will like to hear that, but it's a good reminder for us what, what that's showing. The the God of the Old Testament who was the consuming fire is the God we're still gathering together to worship today. The living God in his almighty greatness. And surely that's what Elijah understood as he was willing to stand against 450 men following a false god. He knew the Almighty was powerful enough. And so too we need to understand this truth when the, the world wants to convince us we're fools for following and trusting in the Lord. Rather than turning to the gods of the day, we need to continue to worship the only object of praise, the great I am. So as as we see Elijah coming to worship the Lord, we're reminded that we too are called to know him. There can be no other objects of worship. Nothing else is worthy of praise. It is our Lord and him alone uh, who who we come to worship this very evening. And furthermore, what's wonderful about the the layout of this narrative is that Elijah gives us the real reasons for worship, I would say. Uh, There's real reasons for worship over the course of this passage. Elijah doesn't just come to the Lord with adoration, but also with thanksgiving, acknowledging that that this is the covenant God, our our redeeming God. For I'd say two things to take away from this is we're shown that Elijah remembers the covenant. Elijah remembers the covenant, and he calls on the Redeemer, or he calls to the Redeemer. Um, the, the first thing to consider is that Elijah is remembering the covenant in the way he's approaching the Lord in this passage. Because um, uh, notice that Elijah, when he's preparing to meet with God, he gives everyone a great reminder of what God's covenant is in verse 31. For he doesn't just get some pile of rocks to, to have this sacrifice. What are we told he does? He, he builds the stones to really restore an altar. And I, and I believe that, that reminder of the covenant promises should be taken both as a reminder of, of God's promises themselves and be taken as a call to repent. Um, it's a reminder of his promises both with the stones and the patriarchs. What I mean by that is in verse 31, uh, it's, it's not just that he happens to find some stones and stack them up. We're told that he stacks up these 12 stones. Uh, we're being reminded of the 12 tribes that, that were certainly broken. 
And oftentimes when things were appointed throughout the Old Testament, uh, the number of 12 stones had this meaning, was to, to show that the numbers of the tribes. From the priestly breastplate in Exodus 28, there were 12 stones. Or remember when Israel crossed the Jordan in Joshua 3 and 4, 12 stones were set up in memorial um, of, of this crossing. And so that idea of, of the 12 stones that Elijah is approaching should certainly call us back to the 12 tribes. And, that, and that's why it's fitting even more so when Elijah speaks the words in verse 36 to God's people. He, he makes that statement uh, calling out to the God of Israel, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Um, the, the covenantal promises are, are being, uh, we're, we're called to remember here. Uh, and whenever those names are invoked, it's really calling us to remember the, the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So I say both in the, the patriarchs and the piles of stones, Elijah's remembering and, and, and really reminding God's people of the promises that had been made. And, and I would say this is one of the key truths to remember for why worship is so important, why when we come together, um, to remember God's covenantal promises. As one commentary or one pastor put it, meeting with God in worship is to engage in a covenantal conversation with the great king. Uh, that's what we're coming to do every time we worship our Lord and proclaim he is our God and we are his people for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that's why we too, when we hear how these stones are set up, can, can not only hear the call to believe, but be reminded of a call to repent. For the manner in which these stones were brought back together uh, were, were not only a, a reminder of God's faithfulness, but the people's faithlessness. I like the way one commentary pointed that out, saying these broken stones that he's rebuilding were as much to chastise Israel as to remind the people of God's promises. For ten tribes had broken away from the people of God. The stones had fallen. But in spite of their falling, the, the Lord's promises were there before them. And so too, beloved, we could say there, there are still some similarities with God's visible promises that were still given today in the sacraments. Especially in the Lord's Supper. Every time we come to the table, we're reminded that we are God's people who He will feed, who He will nourish, who He has promised to care for. But it's also a call to repent every time we approach the table. That's why even this evening we start to begin examining ourselves for next week, right? To prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord, to be ready to feast at this supper, acknowledging our sin and our need to repent. So, so certainly this is a great reminder that we're being given um, in, in this moment. But, but I also say it calls out uh, to the Redeemer, who the Redeemer is. In verses 36 and 37, especially in Elijah's prayer, we're, we're seeing it, it not only stands in a sharp contrast to all the wails we've heard of Baal's prophets, it also has a clear message that the Redeemer is at work. In his request, he's calling that the Lord will give his people both faith and repentance. You know, similar to the points we just considered with the symbolism, that's the actual request that, that Elijah is giving as he comes to prayer to the Lord. It is he who work, for it is the Lord who truly works both faith and repentance in our hearts. It's he who brings us from death to life. It's the Lord our God who is our Redeemer. And so throughout the work of, of Elijah, we're, 
We're given reasons for worship that are still our reasons for worship today. As God's covenant people, we're called to praise Him as our great Redeemer. We're called to repent of our sin and turn to Him. That's why it's also good to remember that that it is the Lord who ultimately is the leader in worship. It's the Lord who has told us how to worship Him. And that's the third and final point I want to consider from this passage, how how we see the Lord leading His people in worship. And and once more, I I call us back to what I mentioned in the introduction in verse 30, where Elijah gives a call to worship. That's what kind of started intriguing me about this passage, that, that when he says to the people, come, he's giving them a call. And it made me think all the more through this passage how we're seeing uh, different elements or different aspects of worship in the midst of all that that takes place. Uh, Six things to be specific. Um, So if you're taking notes, I'm going to mention all six now, but I'll I'll mention them all again. Um, There's a call that he gives. There's a sacrifice that we find. I say even the timing is showing how the Lord leads in worship. And then we see prayers, the word, and God's presence. So as we consider the Lord leading in worship, it's, it's those six ideas I want to reflect on. Uh, the first is that call that I said I mentioned in the introduction, a call from the Lord's messenger. Uh, we already considered it in verse 30, uh, but, but, but when you really look at that very word, there's many different words for call. And the one we find here is, has a, a, a connection to a liturgical use. Uh, The next time we see this Hebrew word for call comes in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 31, where we're told that Hezekiah said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near. Bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were willing of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. So so there it's clearly a, a use to call and gather the people to worship the Lord. And I believe we shouldn't be missing that meaning in verse 30 as well. For he's not just calling a group of witnesses, he's calling people to acknowledge, to turn to the one true God. And and I say furthermore, that aspect of worship is confirmed by what takes place, the sacrifice uh, that is being presented to the Lord. This isn't just a, a, a test between who is the real God. It's a sacrifice that is being offered in verses 32 to 35. An offering being given to the Lord our God. And, and so too, beloved, that's, that's a reminder for us where we can give thanks. We no longer have to uh, sacrifice a bull on the table for what Christ came once and for all to do and fulfill. But, but furthermore, it's a reminder for us that we do come together offering our sacrifices. Uh, we come offering sacrifices of thanksgiving as a people of God, worshiping the Lord, praising His name, giving thanks to Him. But, but any time we come to a moment like this of a sacrifice, the, the, the primary thing to think about is that atoning sacrifice where we can be so thankful that the Lamb of God has paid the price for us that the, there is no need for, for blood to be shed as we're finding in this text into pools uh, to be consumed for Christ himself paid that price. Uh, so, so there's a call coming from the Lord, a sacrifice being presented. And I say we're even reminded that the concept of time is the Lord's. Now, uh, th- this word oblation, I'm sure is something, kids, that you say every day, right? This, this is a common, I'm kidding, of course. We, we, oblation is not something we often state and may wonder, what should we make of this oblation in verse 36? 
Well, some have translated it even to mean the evening sacrifice. So I have to admit, I was really tempted to say this is a, a perfect text to say that's why you need to be here tonight, right? That's a perfect evening worship proof text. But that would mean I have really bad study of the Word of God. And so uh, I'll share that I was tempted to say that, but I don't think there's a strong argument in that from the simple word oblation. But what I would say is it was a time. We may not know exactly what the time was or the meaning of the time, but any time we find a word like oblation, the morning, the evening sacrifice, it's a reminder who's in control of all of time. And our Lord has told the people throughout the Old Testament very clearly when to gather together to worship. He gave them times to give the sacrifices, months and seasons of what they should be presenting unto him. And that's when I say, beloved, we still do have a time. That, that we have been given this day of rest and worship to come together before our sovereign God. And we're those longing for that day where time will mean nothing. When he'll, he'll be such the Lord of time where we'll be partaking in an eternal Sabbath. And whenever we give time to the Lord, whenever we come, when he is called, whenever we acknowledge this day that he has made, it, it's a beautiful aspect of worship to give the Lord the time he has called us to give unto him. And beyond that, when, when this time begins, notice what Elijah immediately does. He prays. He prays to the Lord in verse 36 and 37, the verses we've already considered. But then even beyond that, in verse 39, we're told that the people pray, right? They all fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is a, a wonderful reminder as well that, that we have a dialogue in worship. That we're speaking to the Lord and he's hearing us and he's answering us. The prophets spoke to the Lord, and the Lord answered with the fire from above. And the people respond, acknowledging this is the Lord. It's a beautiful reminder why prayer is so important. I'll always remember a time when a, a young person was visiting uh, my, our church back in Pennsylvania, and when the question was asked, you know, what did you think about our worship service? The immediate response was, you guys pray a lot. Um, there, there's a lot of prayer in your service. And I, to this day, don't know if that was a compliment or a, a, a critique, but I took it as a compliment. Uh, we're called to, to speak to the Lord knowing that he answers us. We sing to the Lord knowing that he answers us. We confess to the Lord knowing that he assures us his pardon. Uh, the prayers of the Lord, given to the Lord are of great importance in this passage as well. But, but from the very start, I would say the, the, the fifth thing we see and should take away from in worship here is is the word of the Lord. Already uh, setting up for the sacrifice, the people are being reminded of God's promise by the statement that Elijah makes in verse 31. When he references the promise, Israel shall be your name. Uh, that It's showing how, how the promises that God has shown to the people are being confirmed by the, the promises he has made. It's God's word that Elijah is pointing them to. And even all throughout Elijah's prayer, he, he's not only speaking on behalf of the people, he's continuing to, to remind all who are listening about uh, God's promises as our covenant king, as redeemer, as we considered in the last point. And how powerful that is, uh, along with his word, that, that we're reminded in worship the Lord is present. For, for when we see that powerful moment of Elijah praying and, and the Lord responding once more I say, we're reminded, beloved, that the Lord is always with us. And, and he confirms the beauty of that when we come together as a body of believers. 
And he reminds us still to this day of his promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. For as I mentioned earlier, this was not the first time the Lord came down in fire, nor would it be the last. Uh, there, there, there's times when we look in, in 1 Chronicles and uh, uh, 21 and 22 and 1 Chronicles 7 that we see two great kings, uh, David and Solomon, who had very similar moments to what we're finding here. Uh, moments that could be seen as a callback with what Elijah is doing, where the fire comes and consumes. But in 1 Chronicles 21, it's when David offers a sacrifice on an altar, and the fire came down to consume it, and he said, this is where the temples will be. And in 1 Chronicles 7, after Solomon had built that temple, the sacrifice was given, and the fire came down and consumed it. So here we are in a moment where the king uh, being represented was godless, was faithless, had no interest in having the, the temple in the same way or acknowledging the greatness of the king who had his 450 prophets of Baal and still the fire came down and consumed it. Here we are on a mountain far from Jerusalem where a broken altar needed to be fixed and still the Lord was faithful to his promises no matter how badly his people had broken it once more. And that's where I say every time we come together to worship, we're given the same comfort. That when we look back throughout the history of God's people in Scripture or turn back the pages of church history, time and again we see those who fall away. And time and again we're reminded of our own faults, our own failures, our own sins, our own struggles. And yet, our Lord is still faithful to His promises. He calls us every week to meet with Him. He calls us to make time for Him to come and pray to Him. And He promises He hears us. He promises that through, the, through His Word that we are looking upon still today, that, that He is the same God who was with Elijah and with His people then. He's the same God who is with us today. And for the same reason, what the promises we're looking forward to already with Elijah, we have seen fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. The great sacrifice who has paid the price once and for all. So may we, uh, along with uh, the way of Elijah and all God's people throughout all time, continue to gather together and worship and long for that day when we all will worship together as one in glory forevermore. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and how in your word we still see his glory the glory of your only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. We rejoice that from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, where grace and truth came through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.